throw 2020 in the garbage! Where's my axe? I'm hungry! Welcome to Get to Work Hurley, the podcast for anyone and everyone who's ever been frustrated with the pro writing life. That is me as well. I, of course, am your host, Cameron Hurley. In today's episode, I want to tackle a topic that's likely on a lot of our minds lately, and that is how to write or write about and write through times of crisis and trauma and how to you know, take those experiences and use them to inform your writing. I'm also going to be addressing some listener questions I got on Twitter and, of course, giving shout out to some great books that I have read recently. Here at the end of Dumpster Fire 2020, hashtag Dumpster Fire 2020, I do find myself a little less beaten down than I did in, let's say, March when quarantine started for me. I did start quarantined. As soon as Ohio let me, which was March 18th or so, when my day job said, hey, if you don't feel comfortable coming to work, go ahead and continue with just working full time from home. And I did, and I have been all this time. There is, however, light at the end of the tunnel for the first time, even if right now virus cases are up and, you know, I had my Christmas tree delivered. I'm not going the fuck outside. Fuck that. You know, America does seem to be about to enter another wild period of domestic white supremacist terror. That's sort of given. I mean, we were founded on white supremacist terror and it, it hasn't gone away. It just goes through these periods where it is more or less emboldened. I know, you know, it's not going to be kittens and roses, but I do find myself able to think about the future now in a way I haven't for at least a year, and maybe even four years. Sometimes I think younger people may be able to get through tough times more easily, simply because like they haven't experienced as many tough times as older people. And I feel like the more you endure again and again, like you would think it makes it easier. And to some extent it does, right? It's like uh, when you first have a breakup, like your first breakup and you're like, it's the end of the world. And then your second breakup, you're like, it's the end of the world. But wait, I thought that first one was the end of the world. And it wasn't. So it's like you're, there's, there's this sweet spot of crises. Like there are first crises, the end of the world. The second crises, you're like, okay, I can endure it. But then you get to three and four and five and six and seven and 20. And it, it really does start to wear you down. <laughs> right? I've learned to take it all in cycles. And, you know, when it becomes too much in this year was definitely like the end of a lot of cycles. Like, all of the year before, you know, I had been laid off suddenly from my job. We lost our health insurance. We lost our main um, source of uh, income. And we spent a year trying to dig ourselves out of that. Then 2020. <laughs> and before that, two years before that, and two years before that. What I've learned is, you know, when you reach that point, it's like, I have to withdraw and regroup. So, and there's no shame in that, which is why I have not done this podcast in a while. I'm writing very, very short stories for Patreon. I have not finished a book this year, which I was supposed to finish in September for sure. But I was like, oh, no, I'll get it done in March. Ha ha ha. No, that didn't happen. So a lot of things didn't happen. That's fine. 
sometimes you got to withdraw and regroup because you got to take care of yourself. And it's far worse. I have found, cause I have, I've worked myself to this place. It's far worse to just keep hacking away. And then you end up blazing up and burning out. And then you're totally burnt out for a much longer amount of time. I think 2014, I definitely burnt myself out. And this year I kind of went, you know what, let's not be hard on myself. It is a global pandemic. It is all the other shit that's going down. It's okay. Like deep breath. Let it get in and out. Let's go ahead and, and, and get started then on, on today's topic. Now that we all are like, yes, it has been a fairly significantly traumatic year for everyone in some way, shape or form. Some of us more than others. And of course, I know we all uh, have loved ones and things who have been through a lot. So that is a great topic for uh, this particular podcast is, you know, I mean, I write already I write a lot about people, you know, who are in abusive relationships or they've had significant trauma in their lives. I'm a historian specializing in war and revolution. I, of course, have my own personal and family experiences to draw from as well, right? And so on Twitter, and this was a while ago, but hey, you know, hashtag dumpsterfire2020, Shannon asked me to speak about uh, the impact of traumatic experiences on my work and if it prevented me from writing and how I got past that, and then navigating writing about those experiences, particularly legal considerations in publishing. Certainly abusive relationships feature often in my work because, you know, I've been in a couple. Uh, I've been in some, uh, you know, you might call them abusive or at the very least fucked up, <laughs> as I've spoken of many times before. And uh, I find that the that exploration of relationships and power, it's really interesting to me to untangle because of that, because I find human beings endlessly complex and the ways that we interact with others and how we knee jerk reactions and emotions and mental health and power dynamics and, you know, sexism and all sorts of different things, right? Play into it. I find that complexity interesting and that, that power dynamic very interesting. And of course, how we model relationships, right, is a big contributor to this as are, again, unaddressed or untreated mental health issues. Again, having gone through that myself. Uh, and I've, of course, discussed, you know, before that a, a big reason two of the characters in my God's War series, like, actually never hook up and everyone wants them to hook up. But I'm like, no, they're in an abusive relationship. There's no way for these two people to get together in a healthy or positive way. There's like no couples therapy on their world. And, but most importantly, neither of them has any interest in changing their behavior. And this is, this is important. Lots of shit is, has been done to them and they have done, but they have no wish or interest in changing because they have not gone through whatever profound emotional experience they need to go through in order to get them to change their behavior. And this is something that with humans uh, is very interesting because when you talk about do people change, people do change but it's super rare, super rare. And what changes people is when they go through a profound emotional experience that transforms the way they look at themselves and their lives and all that. For some people, that is like a near death experience. Um, for me, certainly that was super uh, transformative. It got me to question myself and my behavior and my relationships and what I wanted out of my life uh, in a way that I absolutely would not have uh, unless that had happened to me. I would, I would have lived a very different life I would have been certainly much less uh, far lefty than I have become uh, if I had been in perfect health and, you know, my, my whole life had not nearly died at 26 and been, you know, have to 
have to survive on drugs made by hundreds and gotten to me by hundreds of other people, right? Through the, the grace of many other people in my life. And I recognize that. Um, but, you know, cycles, cycles of abuse continue for all sorts of reasons. But at some point, as adults, we all need to decide, like, what sort of relationships we want to have, right? And what we're going to do with the trauma, right? What are we going to do with what's been done to us? And we have to seek to become the sorts of adults that would have the relationships that we want, right? Like how would, you know, how would this person act in this situation? How would a nice person <laughs> act in this situation of this relationship? And, you know, I mean, I, I've gone through that whole process myself as well. Um, and it's something I, I tell people a lot, you know, when I'm going to events and things, I say, they're like, oh, Cameron, you know, you seem so extroverted. You know, you say you're an introvert and I just don't believe it. And I said, well, you know what I do is when I go to events, I cosplay like a famous writer. I say, what would a famous, gregarious, smart, outgoing writer be like in this situation? And I just do that. <laughs> just do that. And then I go up to my room and I fall asleep because I'm exhausted. Um, but that is that thing where you say, what is the life that I want to have and who do I want to be? And if I want to be a kind and compassionate person, what would a kind and compassionate person do right now? How would they respond in this situation? Um, and sometimes, again, we all need help and the, you know, therapy and, and to work things out and to research and learn. And But not everybody can or wants to do that. And I've been on the bad end of a verbally abusive, manipulative relationship and I've been in a relationship where I was told I was an emotionally fucked up monster. This is also where my interest in monsters comes from in my fiction and how each of us is the hero of our own story and the villain in someone else's. And so you look at a book like The Stars Are Legion with, you know, these two protagonists who've done terrible things to one another to achieve a shared goal. But it turns out like there's no coming back from the horrible things they did. They were just too horrible. I mean, at best they could carry on as colleagues. I am working on a book now with a similar dynamic, but it's two people who've done terrible things, but were able to take some distance from each other, from each other, from the situation, to understand the things that they did, to kind of repair themselves, to decide who they wanted to be, and then to come together again. And I do think if you are, you know, if you have to have some kind of distance or some kind of work, if you want two people who have, you know, bashed against each other to actually come back together, it's very difficult. Super difficult. Back to Shannon's questions. Uh, I did have to take a step back and process all these things that I'd been through, things, you know, I'd done and things done to me before being able to really address it in fiction. I started my blog back in 2004 in part to process my emotions and build my own story of myself in my mid-20s because I really didn't know who I was as a teenager. Um, I felt as a teenager that, um, you know, I didn't know what I was capable of. I hadn't really traveled by myself. My parents were, were pretty, um, you know, they were, they were parents. They were worried about me and they didn't like me to go out and to do things and have a lot of freedom. So I didn't know what I was capable of myself. So I spent a lot of my, you know, I bought a one-way ticket to Alaska at 19 and went to school up there for two years. And then I went to uh, South Africa and I lived in Chicago. Um, and, uh, all of those things that I did, were to find out what I could really do. Um, and so when I started that blog, that was a way for me to process like, and build that story. What, what, who am I? What am I capable of? What can I do? Um, am I capable of uh, great courage? 
<laughs> or I'm, am I an honest coward? Um, now I left my shitty, my shittiest relationship at 19. And again, we all, everybody's got a shitty relationship. Usually some people, but, um, I did start writing God's war until 2004. And I, that was after, again, several continents and countries of travel and half a dozen jobs later. I lived a lot between those two periods of time. And I didn't write The Stars of Legion until six or seven years after my chronic illness, near death, uh, hence the gooeyness of Stars of Legion, and my relationship upheaval of 2005-2007, which was wild. It was, it was wild. I was going to say it was wild, and that's people who were there know it was wild. Um, I was almost dying, but there were also poor decisions. Poor decisions were made. It takes time to process this stuff. And it comes to terms with your own actions, right? Or non-actions. And when I write about trauma from personal experience, what I found works best for me is not to write directly about that experience. It's too close to me. And it feels forced when I try it. So instead, I take the emotion of that experience, you know, how I felt. And I work at it from that angle. I come at it from that angle. So I remember um, I tried to give a character a chronic illness that was similar to mine soon after I got a chronic illness. And I just, I hated it. It fell flat for me. There wasn't, it wasn't something I wanted to explore. It was way too close. It felt super weird. But a few years later, when I started rewriting what would become uh, the Mirror Empire. I created a character, Lilia, who had chronic asthma and a limp that made life more complicated and precarious for her, both of these. And I was able to use the emotions and experiences I'd encountered with my own chronic illness to inform her character and to enrich her and make her much more believable, right? Now, I'm, I'm probably not going to be writing about characters who are going through a global pandemic anytime soon for this reason. But what I might find myself writing a lot more are locked spaceship murder mysteries or people under siege in a tower <laughs> stories. Uh, I might be writing a lot of those in the near future because I will be drawing on those experiences and emotions, right, with the pandemic and, you know, dumbass is like, yeah, I can run outside the tower that's under siege. It'll be fine. And then gets blown up, you know, shit like that. You know, hey. Now, everyone's mileage is going to vary. That's what I've found with my own process. If I've already lived something, I'm much less likely to write directly about that experience in fiction. Instead, I'm going to use that experience and those emotions, and I'm going to remix them into something different. Now, as for the legality part, I, I assume what Shannon is referring to uh, is probably my blogging and, and my writing nonfiction, like the essays and stuff that I touched on in Geek Feminist Revolution. So when it comes to legalese, my publisher for Geek Feminist Revolution tour actually had a lawyer go over the manuscript and call me up and we tweaked a few language things. For instance, one of them was very, very lawyerly. He said, for, for instance, you know, can we change death threats to threats? <laughs> I'm like, sure. <laughs> sure. I once had a lawyer. I once had a lawyer I was working with um, at a place I was doing marketing work for. And he said, instead of cash in this ad, can we say money? Like, sure. Sure, whatever. Um, but overall, again, they were little things. But overall, as long as... There were no identifying details of anyone I talked about in the book, right? Um, 
then a case against me for libel or whatever would be nearly impossible to win and therefore unlikely and they didn't care about it, right? You just have to make sure there's no identifying details. Um, and you just talk very generally. Uh, I do remember, I do remember in one essay, I think uh, the lawyer asked if it was okay that I refer to a fellow writer, Nick Mamatas, who has been a troll for 15 years on the internet. Was it okay uh, to name that I called Nick Mamatis a troll? And I was like, oh yeah, Nick has called himself a troll for years. That's totally fine. Nick would be fine with that. Um, it's already on the internet, so we kept that in. But um, <laughs> but the shitty relationship stuff could stay so long as the identity, again, of said parties was nebulous. And I think if you've read, this was actually very interesting for me to read, Carmen Maria Machado's uh, In the Dream House, which is a memoir of a, an abusive relationship she was in. There's a similar thing going on um, in that, you know, she uses a pseudonym. And though I'd argue, honestly, I was reading that one. I felt there were way more identifying details. Like, I'm like, man, if I, because we run kind of the same circles, like, I could probably figure out who this was fairly easily. Um, one could probably make a pretty good guess uh, based on those. But again, as long as it's not stated outright, I guess there's some deniability, I guess. Um, but again, if it, reading, if you read other people's, um, you know, memoirs and things of, of those sorts of relationships, you'll run into something similar. It's like, uh, as long as you either have to have like serious proof, right? Like long emails and all that shit, or just make it nebulous. I mean, who needs to, I don't know, right after 20 years or whatever, do you really need to name the person? Um, it's like, you, do you need them back in your life? No. <laughs> Let's so move on, right? All right. So uh, another question that I was asked, oh, and, and this is uh, good for this particular time because, you know, what? we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of my God's War books. 10 years in January 2021. It was published in January, January 11th or 10th or 11th, I think January 11th of um, 2011. And that was my first novel published. So I'm officially, I've been in this shit for a decade. Holy shit. I've survived a decade. God, no wonder I had a rough year, right? A decade, man. So, sorry, Eightfold Path asked, will there be a chronological sequel for Nyx? I know she's retired. Uh, hell, I'd love to read about her in a basic family drama. She'd make it unusual and interesting. Oh, hell yeah, she would. Um, now, I do have a, a book of inter-novel short stories out, and that's called Apocalypse Nyx. And I am working on putting together a second volume, which I'll probably self-pub. Uh, and that'll be just like Apocalypse Nix, volume two. Of course it will. And, you know, it, it, here's the thing with the, the Nix books, the God's Road books. Nix is a cult classic that's still in print after 10 years, which is really cool. I think a lot of people don't understand how rare that is in publishing. But she's a cult classic. I can see it. I can see those books breaking out someday. Um, but right now... It doesn't have a huge enough following for to write a book like with the kind of advance I need to make it worthwhile. Trying to find a publisher to push this in the way that I want it to be pushed is, is really tough. And again, I think some of it's also we're just waiting for the market. And I think at some point the market will turn again. And I would like to expand my self-pub offerings in 2021. If only to see, you know, what the market is like for my work there. Because so far I've only put out a few short stories, you know, self-pub and not been super impressed. But I don't put a lot of 
emphasis on that because it's just, oh, it's an extra income stream. And what And it's not, you know, really what I'm looking for. I like, I do like publishing, you know, with bigger publishers. I like the support, um, small as it is sometimes, um, but I do appreciate it. Uh, and I, I do like a lot of aspects of traditional publishing. A lot of it I don't. But, you know, when you talk about self-pub, 99% of what you're talking about is actually publishing on Amazon. That's not exactly independent <laughs> publishing, right? You know, it's a, it's a give and take. It's a give and take. But I do love writing in Nix's world, which is why I do tend to write a story or two about her and her fucked up mercenary families <laughs> for Patreon subscribers every year. So if you're looking for Nick's stories, that's the place you're more likely to find them until there's like the breakout Nick's Netflix series. Totally. And again, I'm swear there's going to be a film or a Netflix series or a comic or something. And that, that series is going to hit. And that'll be really cool. I mean, who doesn't want to follow around a bunch of fucked up mercenaries chopping off people's heads in a desert with a bunch of bugs? Who doesn't want that? I want it, certainly. All right. Finally, some books I have been reading and enjoying. One of those was Get Well Soon by Jennifer Wright. And that is a nonfiction book about plagues and the people who fought them. Now, that might sound like a downer right now, but Wright has this very breezy, funny, re readable style. It's a lot like if you've read Mary Roach, who does a lot of science writing, which is just witty and sarcastic and clever uh, and very funny. And you'll find yourself like eagerly turning the pages to see what terrible, funny, sad thing happens next. Uh, also interesting, the book was written in 2017, so the epilogue is a little... <laughs> little more hopeful than 2020 has been to say the least um now i also read a book called junkyard cats yes junkyard cats i read it and you know why because there was a, a apocalypse looking lady on the cover of that looked like she was sitting in a post-apocalyptic junkyard with a white t-shirt on that was since she was filthy there were a bunch of cats around her and i'm like i would like to read that please right now and it is exactly what it advertised itself to be. It is about this gritty mechanic. She's not, well, she's a mechanic, but in hiding. And there's all sorts, there's all sorts of shit going down. Obviously, it's this post-apocalyptic world, which everyone knows I love. And yes, semi-sentient cats. And shit explodes. There's killer bugs. Uh, it was a really fun popcorn read. It's a novella, so it's it's actually fairly short. And God knows we need fun, uh, short reads. And I was super sad there wasn't already like 10 of these because frankly, I was ready to kill them all up. I read, I finished that and I was like, fuck yeah, let's go read 10 novellas about semi-sentient cats in a post-apocalyptic world. How rad is that? That was a lot of fun. And, uh, if you're looking for craft books, I actually read a recent craft book that I enjoyed that was, it's James Scott Bell's Write Your Novel from the Middle. It's another shorter book, 130 pages. It's a breezy read, and it focuses on what he calls the golden triangle of character, which is establishing where your character is now emotionally, where they will be emotionally at the middle, so that's the tight of the triangle, um, when they have to make that choice, right, of that whatever the emotional theme of your story is, and then where they end up at the end. What is the emotional journey they take, right? That's what he calls the golden triangle. I would probably call it something else. So the emotional journey... A character takes as a result of the story's action. This is this is often neglected when we talk about plot and structure. It's like plot is always like, oh, shit happened, shit happened. Well, 
what I've learned is I see them as parallel journeys that impact each other. So there's the internal character emotional journey going on at the same time as the external plot elements and whatever their internal emotional journey is affects how they respond to those plot elements or how they um, push those plot elements. And so like, I, I like to talk about this a lot where I say, you know, Fleabag season one, um, the great show by Phoebe Waller-Bridge is about processing grief. That is a story about grief and how you process it and comes to terms with it and comes to grips with it and all that other shit that happens around that's funny and hilarious and sad and tragic. That emotional journey is grief. And if you look at season two, season two is the emotional journey of learning how to love again, to love and to let go after you've already been fucked up with grief and to be like, I'm going to love even though I know it's impossible and I'm going to let it go. And the rest, again, all the shit that happens is what happens on that character's journey to get them there, get them to learn how to love, to let go again. And I love that. I love that with those particular, I've watched those, those, both those seasons many, many times. I think it's a really, for me, it was always a really great example to show, Hey, this is the emotional story this is about. And when, once you understand what the emotional story is, you can understand all the choices and all the things that, that happen. So, so that, that was a fun, uh, craft one for those of you who are interested in the craft of writing. And, uh, I would hope that was a lot of you since this is the podcast for anyone who's ever been frustrated with the professional writing life, which is, you know, that is the podcast. Now let's end this return of the podcast with this note. I'm still here. And you're still here. Not everybody can say that at the end of 2020. There's a future. There's a future on the horizon, my friends, that we can plan for again. Whatever you did, whatever happened to you in 2020, however you had to get through it, it's done. It's over. And now we go forward into a new year with new goals and a fresh fucking slate. Okay? We cannot go back. Let's get to work.